Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, what might be the most anticipated exhibition of 2019. My guest is Melissa Ho, the curator of Artists Respond, American Art in the Vietnam War, 1965-75, to at the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington. The exhibition examines how artists responded to the war and reveals the impact the war had on pushing American artists into greater engagement with their world. Artists Respond is on view through August 18th. The exceptional You Gotta Own It exhibition catalog was published by Princeton University Press. Amazon offers it for $45. We've got a link on manpodcast.com. Melissa Ho for the full hour after the break. In John Waters' Indecent Exposure, the trash auteur behind Pink Flamingos and Hairspray shares 25 years of his visual art. The blockbuster retrospective features more than 160 provocative and wickedly funny works born from Waters' personal obsessions with celebrity, crime, and lowbrow culture. Don't miss your last chance to catch this exhibition at its second and final stop, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. It's on view through April 28th alongside the photography survey Peter Hujar, Speed of Life, and a new site-specific mural by Bay Area artist Alicia McCarthy. For more information, go to wexarts.org. From the Buddhas of Bamiyan to the temples of Palmyra, why is the world's cultural heritage being erased? On April 30th, Getty President James Cuno and author Terence Ward explore answers to this question and offer ideas about how to stop the continuing destruction. Get tickets and learn more about this free talk at getty.edu 360. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Pop America, 1965-1975, the first exhibition to present a hemispheric vision of pop art. Visitors who know and love pop art for its engaging imagery will rediscover pop as a verb, a strategy for communicating powerful content throughout the Americas. The exhibition shows how Latin American and Latino and Latina artists made a significant contribution to this artistic period. Pop America features nearly 100 works by a network of Latino and Latina and Latin American pop artists connecting Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Mexico, Peru, Puerto Rico, and the United States. Pop America is the culmination of groundbreaking research by guest curator and Duke professor Esther Gabara. The first ever Sotheby's Prize was awarded to Pop America last year. On view February 21st through July 21st at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Melissa Ho, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. I think it's important to start with what this exhibition is and isn't. So it's not an exhibition of the history of the Vietnam War, and it's not a history of the Vietnam War as considered in art. Um, what was the definition for what the show would be that you came up with? And was it obvious or did it require some narrowing and workshopping? It was a long process to hone the exact focus of the show. Um, but one of the first, one of the first things I knew was that I was most interested in a present tense perspective on the war. So one of the most important parameters for what would be in and what would be out was that we would look really specifically at the years 1965 to 1975. Um, so that is, of course, the height of U.S. military involvement in Southeast Asia and the height of American public awareness about the war there. So that's perspective is quite different from looking at art that has come since. Um, and that art that has come since is able to reflect on the war with hindsight and, you know, address its continuing presence and legacy. Um, this exhibition instead focuses on art that was created as the events of the war were still unresolved and open-ended. Um, and so that is, that right at the beginning is a different set of conditions because it is asking, uh, it's responding to what I heard from many of the artists and, you know, indirectly through their work of feeling your way through a moment of national crisis and reckoning and asking yourself as an artist, um, what does this mean for my work? And, um, should the role of art uh, under these conditions continue as they have been, or 
um, is some kind of adjustment necessary. Uh, and, and specifically in that mid, early mid 60s moment, um, which is a moment when American art is, has been, you know, standing apart from social engagement. Um, there's a real question of whether that is still satisfying to sort of remain in your practice um, separate from or elevated from uh, current events. So the, the sort of time perspective was one of the first things that came into focus. Um, and then beyond that, it, it, it was difficult because it wasn't clear how to draw the limits in terms of um, art practice where. Uh, and this became more clear once I came to the Smithsonian American Art Museum, because, of course, I was for the first time entering an Americanist institution. Um, so the framework is is sort of exists, <laughs> pre-exists me, pre-exists the project. Um, but I also by that time had come to believe that that was that was an appropriate perspective to explore. And so it's it's including artists not necessarily all of whom were American citizens and, um, you know, they, they represent a variety of, um, national origins, but people who were working in the United States, exhibiting in the United States, and in other words, contributing to the formation of the American canon of that moment. Um, and, and, and that was, that was the other sort of focusing thing that, that had to happen. The other there at the beginning question about which I wanted to ask was whether biography was important to you. Were you interested in the personal experiences of artists, whether they had been drafted, whether they had taken specific actions to reduce their risk of being drafted to avoid the draft? Did any of that personal experience matter to you in choosing who and what would be in the show? I think intrinsically biography was interesting to me because one of the the changes that the show is tracking is again this move away from this idea of modernism as timeless and universal and sort of separate from individual identity to getting into this area of human experience um you know shared broad social reality but then also um on a more personal level. And, and one of the things that sort of presented itself as I was researching and casting a very wide net was picking out patterns like uh, not only were many of the artists who felt moved to address what was going on in Southeast Asia in their art, a lot of them did have military experience or were veter war veterans or they had lived through conditions of war or the immediate aftermath of war as civilians, having come from other parts of the world. And that was really interesting to me because, you know, for the white majority in the mainland United States, war has always taken place someplace else. And a major concern that sort of comes to the surface through this art is how do we talk about and visualize and critique a war that's happening far away? And it sort of is natural, I think, that it's um, people for whom war has been closer that they are sensitive to those questions and they're, they're um, mobilizing that in their work. Well, let's get into the show itself. Was there an artwork that either instigated the exhibition or that you thought had to be in the show for the show to to work, to unfold? Well, there, there was a work that got me thinking about the topic, um, and that is the painting, um, it's a triptych by Ankawara, uh, that's in the collection of the National Gallery of Art here in Washington. And so I first came across that painting here. It's a painting from 1965, but I had never seen it. I'd never um, known of it. Um, and when I first saw it, it absolutely floored me because it differed so much from what I had, you know, what I did know about Kawara. Um, so Kawara, of course, is very well known for his Today series of date paintings. 
um, and those I were I was familiar with. Title, as I said, is a triptych, um, and the cent- central canvas is aligned with the date paintings that follow, in that it basically consists of the date that the painting was made, which is 1965. Um, And then there's two other canvases to the left and right that read One Thing and Vietnam. And so it is calling out very directly um, a place (laughs) uh, in relation to a time. And of course, at that time, Vietnam was mired in conflict and 65 in particular was the year of American escalation when um, the United States first sends in ground combat troops and begins the the air war against North Vietnam. And Koara is working in New York and has been in the United States at that point for about a year. Um, So seeing that piece really made me reassess Kawara and go deeper into his, not only his biography, but his body of work, because of course, those who know his work well understand that there are these, um, this concern with war and trauma running through a lot of it, including the early work that he made in the 50s in Japan. But it also made me wonder what else I was missing, you know, what else I didn't know about. Because, of course, when I, you know, it's been a while, but when I first was, you know, in college studying American art at the 1960s, the larger social political context was not mentioned at all. And yeah, could I let me jump in on that really for a moment? I don't remember if it's your essay or one of the catalog entries, but it details how this Kawara was historicized. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe quickly telling that story might um, might explain what you're 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 referencing now. Right. So the this painting is truly a sort of a turning point in Kawara's practice. Um, it is one of a couple works that he makes in 1965 that then lays the groundwork for this um, you know this lifelong project that follows beginning at the uh, the beginning of 1966 with the Today series. Um, and so it is this turning point in conceptual art, uh, but it was not seen in the United States for nearly, I think, 30 years, even though it had been made in New York. Um, and when it finally was shown in the United States, it was in the context of an exhibition about, um, about conceptualism of that period. And the, the relevance of the war in Vietnam as subject matter is something that Kawara was flagging and kind of drawing attention to um, was really um, barely mentioned. Um, and in that reading, the phrase one thing was taken to be a sort of self-referential conceptual gesture towards the art object itself. So the one thing was the painting. And that differed so strongly from my immediate sort of visceral read of it as the one thing being the effects of war, the effects of militarism, the consequences of this, um, which, you know, admittedly is being delivered in this very restrained, austere manner um, that seems correct for Kawara. But, you know, because of his practice of never giving interviews, of never commenting on his work, um, in a way, it's not surprising that that wasn't excavated more. Um, But it it was surprising to me by the 2000s that that had not been the case. Yeah, I was stunned to read that um, in in, in the catalog. I I think I know the answer to this. But how often did you find that you had to uh, rehistoricize or recontextualize works that had mostly been considered in non-Vietnam, non-war-related contexts? Well, the other major example that comes to mind is the Dan Flavin sculpture that is called Monument Four for those who've been killed in ambush. Um, and that I was really interested to learn 
was included in the 1966 exhibition Primary Structures at the Jewish Museum, which, of course, you know, is often cited as the exhibition that sort of defined and, um, you know, minimal sculptural practice and sort of introduced that generation of artists to a broader New York minimal sculpture practice. Yes, minimal uh, practice in New York. And very, I mean, maybe not surprisingly, in the context of 1966 in New York, the very pointed title that he gave that work, which, you know, aligns with the form of that work, which is this, um, it's its made out of four eight-foot fluorescent tubes. Uh, it's a its a monochrome. It is a, a deep red color. It juts out of the corner. The form has been compared to a crossbow. It's also quite similar to, you might bring to mind a, a machine gun mounted on a tripod. It's quite aggressive in how it addresses you, um, especially as you move around it and it appears to sort of, you know, train its sights on you. It, it, it does through its form, through its color, evoke some emotions that I think um, resonate with this mention of ambush. And of course, death by ambush is something that would have been really clearly associated with the kind of guerrilla war that was taking place in, in Vietnam at that time. But curiously, you know, like none of the none of the reviews at the time mentioned that and none of the not, I mean, very little that I've read about Flavin um, from that period I don't think hardly anything mentions um, his status as a military veteran um, and his experience in, in he, he wasn't in combat in Korea, but he served overseas for a period after the Korean War. Um, so he had his eyes open, I would think, to um, the consequences of, of, of American foreign policy and, 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 and the war there. So... It's that's another example where, you know, I think the work has been seen a lot, but it's exciting to show it in a context that invites more explicitly, invites the viewer to consider it through the lens of that happening in the background. Um, and I think Chris Burden's shoot is also a little bit like that, because that that was a piece that um Again, you know, it's canonical work that anybody studying this moment, you're likely to have been um, lectured on. <laughs> um, and it may or may not have come up that, you know, he's making this in 1971. He's of an age that um, he's conscious that there's a lot of guys his age um, really being shot at. Vulnerable um, even. Yeah. Yeah. So so there are there are a handful of examples like that. And then, you know, the other thing that was exciting was to be able to show these, you know, very well-known artists and in some cases very well-known works uh, alongside an array of works that are much less well-known. And at the time, were, many of them were quite marginalized. The catalog proceeds year by year. So the works made in 65 are grouped together. The works made in 66, such as this Flavin, are grouped together. Mm -hmm. I'm in, in terms of how our conversation about the works in the show proceeds, I'm, I'm going to depart from that and kind of get into some broader thematic things, in part because um, I haven't seen the show yet, um, so I don't know how it exists on the walls, but also because the catalog does such a good job with the chronology and the catalog's so terrific, and I really hope people uh, pick it up, that I just want to do something a little different. And that Flavin um, is a really good place to start. Um, you mentioned the forms that the object takes, whether it, it, it appears to be a machine gun or what have you. One of the forms it suggests is, is a phallus. There are a lot of uh, phallic forms in this show, and a lot of artists make relationships between... Uh, the, the the conduct of the war, determinations about the war. I'm talking about the highest levels of government um, and 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 phallic forms. I I imagine that jumped out to you as you were um, putting putting the show together, and yet you still included a whole lot of them. So how and why did did you realize that that was something important that artist after artist and not just men and not just women but both seized upon? Hmm. I mean, I I guess. I guess it was the it it was the 
observation of how many, you're right that it's both men and women, but how openly women in particular were using gender to critique the war. And, uh, and that felt important to underscore um, because this is a generation of women artists who are operating both before, during, and after the very notion of something that you would call feminist art. And yet they're on the topic of the war. Um, they are drawn to a critique of masculinity that is really connected to militarism and military aggression. Um, and that is something new and important um, to emphasize, I think, about this this moment. And, you know, so I'm thinking here uh, particularly of, um, you know, artists like Nancy Sparrow and Judith Bernstein who are um, making really fierce pictorial works um, that don't shy away from the most sort of taboo imagery in order to make a point about the conduct of the war and this idea of the the need, the the, the, the perceived necessity of appearing tough um, and this kind of John Wayne attitude towards um, towards war making. Um, and so it made perfect sense to me that the, the phallus would be employed for that. I mean, another example uh, of, of someone like Judith Bernstein, who's who's also using the phallus in a way to mock militarism is Klaus Oldenburg's lipstick ascending um, sculpture, which, uh, was, you know, his first, um, monumentally scaled public sculpture. And it was, um, actually initially a sort of a guerrilla action that was, um, uh, or organized, um, along with a, a group of, of graduate students in the architecture school who invited him to, to, to do this project, but they didn't get the permission from the university administration, um, but they brought this large scale sculpture right into the heart of the Yale campus and parked it uh, near the president's office, near uh, a, a well-known World War One war memorial. Um, and it took the form of a lipstick on um, sort of um, tank-style treads. And in its original form, it, the lipstick was inflatable <laughs> and was meant to um, fill up and become erect as a, somebody ascended it to speak. So it was kind of, it was, it was there as a platform for, for, for public discourse. And, um, that's, was also really interesting to me because it, it has since been, you know, the original one eventually sort of fell apart and Oldenburg removed it. Um, and then now it's been replaced by a permanent version, which, doesn't quite convey like the, the the anarchy I think of that initial happening. We'll talk about performance a little later, um, but it's also it, it's certainly a work that has I mean a you know that is performative I I, I I guess you could say you know I after seeing all of the phallic form in uh, in the show it really put Gustin's Nixon's into a different context for me. I mean, mm -hmm. it's kind of suggesting that he wasn't just responding to Nixon, but that he had been paying attention to all of this art about Vietnam in the, in the previous decade. And I wonder if you came to think uh, of, and there is a, there is a Gustin Nixon in the show. I wonder if you came to think of them in, in a different way. Well, I mean, Gustin for sure is a fascinating case study um, that, I'm really glad we could represent in the exhibition because he's somewhat older than many of the other artists in this exhibition. Um, and he's somebody whose trajectory um, and, and this engagement with Nixon that you're referencing that starts in 1971 really um, says so much about the argument that was raging at that time in the New York art world about figuration versus abstraction, uh, which from today's perspective seems sort of cuckoo, but, um, <laughs> but was, was very real. Um, so, you know, he's somebody who, he's such an interesting example because I think 
um, you know, he, 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 he started doing figurative work. Um, but then in the 50s, makes extraordinary abstract works that he's um, revered for. But it is absolutely the pressures and the upheavals of the, the mid and later 1960s that drives him to, to reassess and sort of he goes through this um, this artistic crisis. And that's when he has this famous late career shift at the end of the 60s, back into this, back into figuration, this sort of cartoony, um, you know, the hooded figures, the self-portraits, the arms and legs, the feet that, you know, famously really divided people and that he felt, um, you know, he used language like um, being excommunicated for, for doing that. Um, so he, he felt that cost. So it's interesting to then look at the, you know, he had his 1970 Marlboro exhibition, which, um, where he debuted this new work and he was, you know, it was mixed reviews, but he had some really, um, some really devastating negative reviews. Um, he withdraws from the United States and he's, um, in residence at the Academy in Ro in Rome, um, comes back in the summer of 71, that's when he starts um, doing the Nixon drawings. And his ambivalence about that body of work is profound. He, he never, he published, maybe, he may be allowed three or four to be published during his lifetime, but even though he had pulled out a selection to publish as a book, he ultimately decides not to. And I think he was um, from his correspondence and from what um, friends of his have, have uh, uh, you know, remembered from that decision was it seems to have been a, you know, he decided it was too risky that he would basically be seen as just a political cartoonist and that it would undermine the importance of these later paintings that he really um you know, he knew were important and, and, and didn't want them to be further dismissed. And then the painting that's in our exhibition, which is from 1975 called San Clemente, which is, as you say, this, um, you know, this devastating portrait of Richard Nixon, uh, that was the last sort of gasp of, um, Gustin's engagement with Nixon as a, as a, a subject matter. Um, and he, he didn't do any other oil paintings that, um, address Nixon. Um, and he never showed that painting. Um, he didn't destroy it. It was until recently in, you know, belonged to his daughter, uh, but he never, he never exhibited it. Um, and it, it probably for him at that time crossed the line of, being too explicitly, too explicit in its topical commentary, but it's an extraordinary work. And as you say, he makes his face, Nixon's face, into these sagging balls and this um, pathetic phallus. And then even more grotesque is his depiction of, of, of Nixon's leg, um, because when he's making this painting, it's post Watergate, it's post the resignation, it's actually at the time when, um, you know, some of the top uh, Watergate um, figures are on trial, Ehrlichman, Dean, Halderman, um, and, and Nixon is is suffering from uh, plebitis, and I had pretty serious surgery, I think, um, for that. But Gustin's just exaggerated it to this swollen, um, painful, uh, you know, like sort of obviously the, what comes to mind is he's projecting onto that diseased leg all of the sort of corruption and, and deceit of um, that administration. And of course, the title of the painting refers to the uh, southern Orange County town to which uh, Nixon retired, uh, a town which is basically right next to um, a marine base. Right. Yes. Right on on uh, the ocean in in Southern California, which is also in the painting. So it's kind of uh, a painting of of exile exactly. that re that, ref yeah. that refers to the militarism um, that that Nixon further enabled. Another theme that runs through an enormous amount of the work in the show is the relationship between women's bodies, um, 
war and the impact uh, war has on on women. There, uh, we, we see that in works by artists such as Yoko Ono and Judith Bernstein, Yuyoi Kusama, Liliana Porter. Um, was that something that you intended to get into the show or wanted to get into the show from the beginning? Or is it something that as you researched the show just must have seemed ubiquitous? Well, I think there's two different things going on here that you're responding to possibly. One, certainly not just for anti-war artists, but in the anti-war movement in general. I think images of civilians were uh, used to for sort of evidentiary power, right? And so these tended to be women and children. And then the other thing I would say is it was really clear to me, not just the bodies of women, but just bodies. Bodies are the vocabulary of the war. The everything from the preoccupation with body count, you know, because this was a war that was not fought for territory. So the metric that um, that was referenced was the body count, famously referenced um, by the U.S. government and the military. Referenced yeah. by the U.S. military um, and the deployment of bodies as instruments of warfare, but also the the deployment of bodies as instruments of, of dissent because, you know, following the, the example, of course, of the civil rights movement, you know, by the, the later 60s, this idea of um, showing up and using your, your, your body to show up and be counted in demanding um, change that's really potent as well. Um, the other thing I'll say is, you know, huge and important contextual thing that came through in all of the art is the media environment, both the conditions of the television war, which was something new and unprecedented, but also the how heavily covered this was by photojournalists. And um, this was an era before the, you know, net today's practice of photographers having to be embedded with U.S. military units, you know, in Vietnam, there was no U.S. military censorship, and it was relatively easy to get credentialed in South Vietnam if you could get there. Uh, so there is this real flow of images from the front lines to the home front uh, that everybody and artists included are, are, are contending with and trying to make sense of and and talking uh, trying to figure out how to employ you know and, and this these are really thorny questions you know images of real suffering uh, and, and real death and that presence of casualties and death in the in the media i think really comes through in this preoccupation with the body uh, in across the board you can see it in 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 painting and sculpture in the show, and then, of course, as well, in, in performance art, as you, you're mentioning. My guest is Melissa Ho. We'll be right back after a break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Alan Ruppersberg, Intellectual Property, 1968-2018. to This major retrospective offers a chance to experience the pioneering artist's work in unprecedented breadth and depth. Ruppersburg's first comprehensive U.S. survey in over 30 years, intellectual property includes more than 120 works made over the past 50 years, from early assemblage sculptures and photo works combining text and image to drawings and collages. Recent immersive installations are shown alongside Ruppersburg's groundbreaking environments, Al's Cafe and Al's Grand Hotel, participatory projects that help put L.A. on the map as a center for conceptual art. On view February 10th through May 12th at The Hammer, Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. The Nasher Sculpture Center, presenting Sterling Ruby Sculpture through April 21st. Experience nearly 30 sculptures that include monumental works from poured urethane to ceramic collages weighing hundreds of pounds to soft sculptures incorporating inexpensive fabrics dyed in Ruby's studio. This range of media straddles the line between high and low, fine art and craft, luxury goods, and common necessities. Learn more about how to visit Sterling Ruby Sculpture at the Nasher Sculpture Center at nashersculpturecenter.org.
And now back to my conversation with Melissa Ho. In your catalog essay, you note that Americans were sheltered from the war by virtue of ours being a mostly continental nation, and that artists believed Americans needed to be reminded that mass death and destruction are real phenomena with real consequences and real and broad pain. And I'm struck not just by how much this motivated so many artists in the show, but all the ways they found of trying to bring that pain and that response to violence to an American public. What are some of the examples in the show of that that meant the most to you? Well, I think by far the most shocking and upsetting work in the show is the Art Workers Coalition poster and Babies, which is quite a iconic um, example of work of graphic art that was produced explicitly um, in protest of war. Um, and this is an example as well of, of another trend that I tried to tease out in the exhibition of artists turning to information and sort of real world facts um, and in often the techniques, strategies of, of reportage or, or, and journalism as the stuff of art. Um, although, you know, I should say that um, an example like the Ann Babies poster, it really was not made uh, as a work of art to be sort of circulated as an art object. It really was made as a as a work of, of agitprop and um, and protest. So it it combines a, a terrible photograph of um, the scene at My Lai after the atrocities there that was taken by an army photographer who was on the scene and combines it with text that also, you know, comes out of a, a journalistic source or a documentary source in that it's a quote from an interview that Mike Wallace did with one of the soldiers who had participated in the slaughter at My Lai. And the question is, and babies? And the answer is, and babies, meaning babies were also killed. And this is the most sort of pronounced example, I would say, of artists, you know, at that time, working collectively and anonymously, I can say that it was, you know, spearheaded by John Hendricks, Irvin Petlin, and Fraser Doherty in particular, um, as members of the Art Workers Coalition, wanted to basically show a, a grisly reality because this was um, an event that had been suppressed by the U.S. military for about a year at that point because the um, the, the massacre at Milai had happened in 1968. It isn't until the end of 1969 that uh, Seymour Hersh's investigative reporting brings it to light. And so in a way, they're jumping on his heels and amplifying, getting that story out. So they made 50,000 copies of this poster um, held it up at demonstrations. I mean, it's interesting that where the demonstrations were concentrated were um, at museums, <laughs> in particular the Museum of Modern Art. So you see artists behaving not unlike the way college students were at that time and where they're, they're really identifying the university, the university administration, the university campus as the place where they can register their dissent. Artists likewise had a sense like we are part of this world, we operate here, we have some hope of sort of exerting political pressure in this context and they, um, you know, there were many, many protests at, at especially um, in New York at museums. Um, and so there are some famous pictures of the Ann Babies poster being held aloft in front of, um, for instance, Picasso's uh, Guernica, which at that time was on view in New York. They also had a plan. They wanted to get it out to a broader audience. And so they, they had a plan to try to publish it on the covers of the major art magazines. And that fell through and didn't happen. So that would be the most extreme example. But I, I think it's also the case that, like I said, this preoccupation, this concern with the real bodily consequences of war and violence um, shows itself in a lot of works that are not as overtly activist. Um, and it's just a sort of a recalibration of art back towards this realm of storytelling, of addressing human values and, and human experience that 
at least for a short time, I think there are some American artists felt that art had become too detached from that. I think we'll probably come back to that in a minute. Um, one of the works that really addresses uh, or tried to bring the violence of the war home is a performance by the Guerrilla Art Action Group at, at MoMA. What was that work? And well, I guess maybe first, what was that work? And then we'll talk about performance. Right. So the Guerrilla Art Action Group was a smaller number of artists, many of whom were also involved with the Art Workers Coalition, who were really influenced by destruction art, really influenced by action art, and believed in sort of direct action techniques. Um, and so they did a number of interventions um, in public spaces, often, like I said, at, at museums. And the, the piece that's highlighted in the show, which you know is, is sort of colloquially often referred to as bloodbath, is a work where they, they went into the Museum of Modern Art, they had bags of beef blood hidden underneath their clothing. Uh, there were four of them, two men and two women, and uh, just in normal street clothes. And then once they're in the crowded lobby, began struggling with each other and sort of wrestling and screaming out rape and and burst the blood. And essentially it was a die-in in the middle of this sort of elevated museum. And they're also, importantly, scattering around them pamphlets that call out the museum's ties through its trustees, namely the Rockefellers in particular, um, the ties that they saw with the war machine. And so it's it's both a, a, an example of um, sort of direct action performance. It's also really an example of institutional critique because it was really designed specifically to, to, to call out that museum for very particular ties to this larger um, this this larger complex of, of, of political and military power. There's a lot of performance in the show, and I was struck uh, over and over again by how uh, in, in today's art world, um, institutions have really tried to institutionalize performance. They, they put it in their atriums. Um, they, they uh, you know, giant buildings in Hudson Yards are built by star architects that are intended for performance. And in your show, the site of performance is often nearly as important as the performance itself. Are there a couple works that, that you think are particularly worth mentioning that kind of meld both the, the action of the thing itself and where it happened? Yeah, I mean, a number of them have, have already come up in our conversation. Um, so there, there is this whole, and I should say that, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the, the structure of the exhibition catalog is very strongly chronological, but the structure in the gallery is quite different and is um, thematic. And one of those sort of groupings that came up was exactly a, a group of works that uh, is under the header um, sites of protest. And many of these are happening places that, like I've already mentioned, you know, like sites of authority where, where artists thought that they might be heard, such as the museum, but also university campuses, you know, the Oldenburg is one. And then Kusama does this whole series of public happenings around New York City during the 1968 presidential campaign season. Um, and she's very pointedly picking places that she sees as implicated in the, the war machine. And so she does, for instance, um, uh, this is what's in, in our exhibition, a, a performance down at the Stock Exchange, which, of course, is right across the street from Federal Hall and the sculpture of George Washington. And so there's these amazing images of her and her performers sort of, and, and I should say that the performances were these like nudist dance filled um, sort of uh, men and women cavorting. It's, it was, it was this kind of playful uh, deployment of sexuality against uh, militarism and there, there's these amazing photographs of the performers in front of the figure of George Washington, who was also, of course, um, you know, an inspiration to Ho Chi Minh. So there's these references that are being made, I think, to Amer you know, the American history of colonialism, revolution, and in, 
and maybe implicitly a question of like, where are we today in the in this? Another piece that really hinges on location is a performance work by the Los Angeles group OSCO. And the work in our exhibition is now known as Stations of the Cross and was actually Oscar's very first such public um, action. Um, and it was so early, actually, that at that time, Harry Gamboa Jr. didn't own a camera. And so there would not be any documentation of this work if it hadn't been the case that uh, another um, California photographer, Seymour Rosen, happened to be walking through the same neighborhood and, and, and captured um, this piece. And what the piece was, the three male members of OSCO parading down Whittier Boulevard in a, in a range of costume. The lead figure, Willie Haran, was dressed as sort of a Christ figure, burdened by this enormous 15-foot cardboard cross. And Whittier Boulevard, of course, is the main thoroughfare in East Los Angeles. And, you know, a year earlier had been the site of the Chicano Moratorium March, which was the, the largest march against the Vietnam War organized uh, within a, a minority community and a really uh, important event. And Whittier Boulevard in general was a place, was sort of contested public space, um, was a, a place of that was, that was policed. So it was not insignificant or incidental for them to choose that space to occupy, march down, and then eventually they ended by blocking the entrance to a a U.S. Marine Recruitment Center with that cross and sort of making off after that. There are a couple other uh, uh, tropes, isn't the right word, but it's close, um, that run through the show that we're probably not going to have time to discuss in detail, but that I just want to flag. Uh, one is the use of text in artworks. You know, we're coming out of, of abex and minimalism. Text must have sh seemed quite shocking to art viewers in a certain way. Uh, and of course, there are lots of riffs on on the American flag, often within some of the things that we've already discussed, such as phalluses. I wanted to talk a little bit about how artists that we now and even then identified with specific movements considered whether or not the language of their ism could address contemporary geopolitics and how they grappled with that. We've already talked about Flavin. Are there other examples of, say, minimalists who either found minimalism and its strictures a way to address the war, or are there ways that artists who were what we would now consider minimalists found that they needed to go outside their ism, and how did they do that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to, to say that the work that's represented in this exhibition, by definition, is a, is a minority of what was actually being produced at the time. And there was much more work at the time being produced that had absolutely nothing to, to do with uh, the war in Vietnam or any other um, current event. And so, you know, it's just to say that. Uh, and there are plenty of artists who felt strongly uh, about the importance of the the of keeping art and, to, to, for lack of a better shorthand, art and politics separate. Um, and there's, and I think that is a defensible position. You know, I think that there are plenty of artists for whom their work stands as an assertion of, of personal, by extension, political freedom that it, that isn't immediately legible as as quote unquote political. And so, you know, many of the minimalist, what we would call the minimalist artists now kind of fell into that category. And some of them were quite politically well-informed and, and active as private citizens, but maintained their art practice as something separate. And occasionally, you know, there might be a context in which they felt it was appropriate or they saw a way forward of being a little bit more outspoken in a legible way in a work of art, but they tended to be exceptions. So, you know, we have some of those exceptional works in the exhibition as well. Some of them are things like poster designs by Carl Andre and Donald Judd, 
one of the more it's it, it's been interesting to me one of the works that has that people have commented to me on the most which surprised me is the Barnett Newman sculpture lace curtain for Mayor Daly and of course Newman you know most well known for his glorious color field paintings um, and also like from an older generation of New York school artists, painters. He makes this sculpture in 1968 that was for a protest exhibition that was mounted in Chicago in the wake of the police violence at the the convention, uh, the Democratic convention. Um, And it's it's, um, minimal in appearance in a way. It is a grid of of, of barbed wire within a... um, within a steel frame. Uh, but it's quite surprising if you're acquainted with his, his painting to see this. And, and, and Newman's somebody his entire life who considered it important for artists to be outspoken as citizens and was very, very invested in his practice as a sort of um, a separate, you know, having this special integrity. You know, and it's interesting because he came out of the depression and the second world war like others of his generation to a very different conclusion than what these artists you know 30 years younger are 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 doing in the late 60s and 70s also responding to sort of dire conditions of 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 war and destruction what impact did uh the war and artists engagement with it have on the direction of American art um, and how it had been oriented around isms um, and even specific geographies? Um, and how did, how did the war change that and push American artists in, in a different direction? Well, I think that there's an opening up of subject matter and an opening up of, of means as well, you know, because you have a whole generation who's grappling with the question of those two things, you know, like, can I make aesthetically innovative, adventurous, meaningful work and also embrace subject matter of, of conscience and moral imagination? And it opens things up tremendously. I, I, I think that there's all of these sort of genres of, of art strategies, you know, performance is a notable one where that blurring of lines between lived everyday social experience and art, <laughs> capital A, is, is really being productively mobilized here. And there's also more room, you know, the breakdown of, you know, I, I think the war was one of many factors that sort of broke down the, you know, what younger artists had come to consider the myth of modernism, you know, the, the myth of, of purity. Um, and once you accept impurity, it it opens things up in all directions. And um, one of the important ways it opens things up was who could say something as an artist, you know, like it's, it's not at all an incidental aspect of the show that there are so many women and artists of color, uh, represented who were interested in registering their specific perspectives, the war. And, you know, it, it, the war period is coinciding with the rise of, the black arts movement of the Chicano art movement um, and these communities of makers who are prioritizing, you know, who are really critiquing establishment aesthetics and, 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 and prioritizing um, arts political voice and also questioning, you know, um, you know, cultural self-determination. You have a whole realm of, it might still be a, 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 a painting in that sense, like not a new, not a new genre of art, but new people saying things through painting that is really something that we, you know, from to, again, from today's perspective, seems, seems second nature, but um, really wasn't the case in the mid 60s. I want to kind of, as we as we head to the end here, I want to ask two questions about decisions you made not to include certain things or certain subjects, and, th- and then to ask about what you considered but maybe didn't fit or couldn't get 
um, for the show. A lot of the work in the show, and really almost all of it, directly addresses Vietnam, and almost none of it does what the TV show MASH did, which was to be about Korea or somewhere else, and through that place, address Vietnam. Another example that's not in the show might be uh, V.S. Hellman's work of um, the mid to late 1960s, which addresses mm. violence um, and is very much about Vietnam, especially as Hellman's was, was living in L.A., um, at that moment. So work that isn't explicitly, directly, specifically about Vietnam isn't here. Um, did you think through that? And why did you make the decision you made? Yeah, I'm just thinking, I mean, actually, I mean, regarding Selman's, that was work that I would have liked to have had in the show. But she was that that was a body of work that, that I looked at. And I'm trying to think, I mean, there, there definitely is to be honest, uh, Tyler, I hadn't, I'm completely thinking on my feet here in that I don't think that I have considered exactly what you're asking, but there are, it, it may partly be the condition of, you know, so it's a large show with 58 different makers represented in it. And when you have a show like that, it is not, there's not very much opportunity to show multiple works by artists. And so I think when you're trying to, to hone in on maybe like one or possibly two representative works, perhaps I consciously or not went into the, the most sort of on point. Because, you know, when you say um, representing Vietnam, but not so explicitly, there are a lot of people in the show who did a range of work that one might have chosen something that was less direct, you know. So, for instance, Leon Golub is addressing violent human struggle and the struggle of men um, in his work for many, many years, you know, and to differing degrees of generalization and um, specificity. And the piece that we identified for this show is on the explicit end um, and it represents sort of the culmination of his evolution in you know because Golub is one of the artists who from very very pretty early like 64 was already protesting the war he and Nancy Sparrow had lived in Paris in the, the early 60s and sort of had been on the sidelines in in watching um how the French were protesting um, the war in Algeria, French artists, that is, um, and then came home to the United States and, and, and settled in New York and very early on, you know, become engaged in protesting the American involvement in Vietnam. But his work does not sort of shies away from the most direct addressing of that war until 72 you know, so it's it's almost ten years where he's doing, and, and he and he has written about this and spoken about how he grew dissatisfied and frustrated with, you know, talking in his painting about tension and conflict, and then in all around him, presumably by this he means uh, American culture and like the media coverage of the war. There is tension and conflict. And it's right there, and there was a disconnect uh, between the kinds of paintings he was making and what he was experiencing. And so then in the Vietnam series, which is only um, three paintings, he for the first time starts drawing on um, very directly on images from the media of combat in Vietnam. So he is for the first time really depicting soldiers in recognizable uniforms and he's depicting people with uh, racialized features, uh, identifiable in place and origin. And so that interested me, you know, that interested me. The And you see this with a lot of painters of, of kind of stretching for a language that is powerful enough, strong enough, you know, direct enough to express what they were feeling. Um, and, you know, it was also interesting in the case of Golub specifically to realize that, you know, 
most of these paintings live today outside the United States. You know, they have not been collected by American institutions. Um, the This is one of the only works in the show that I, I didn't see before it came to be installed because it's 38 feet long. <laughs> it is normally stored, uh, rolled, and it belongs to the Tate Modern, and there was just no way for me to see it in storage. Um, and when it arrived and was unrolled, it was it was, you know, it was a really amazing day. Another decision you made was not to, more or less, include art that addressed the military-industrial complex, mm. um, which uh, starts up in the wake of World War II, gains steam in the 1950s, and accelerates in the 60s, even and especially uh, after Eisenhower's famous farewell address warning about it. Your show includes a lot of California-based artists. California was ground zero of the military-industrial complex, really helped build the state um, after World War II. Did you think about including works about it, and how did that decision go if you did? I, ha I have to say, I guess, I mean, I think the closest we, we got are the works by Martha Rosler and Fred Lonadier in the show, uh, but but no, I mean it. This is this was such a large show <laughs> already. She um, says, having just referenced a thirty-eight foot painting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's 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 a big show, but also just big. I mean, there are many. Listen, I, I'm really conscious of the the strands and the stories that are left out. Um, There's sort of an infinite number. And some of them are, are regional, some of them are thematic, some of them are historic. It had been so long since a curator had, had attempted to go yeah, around yeah. like this that in my moments of anxiety, <laughs> I kind of just came to feel like, well, this is a first step. And I have no doubt and I have every hope that this project will be a launching pad for other investigations, whether scholarly or exhibitions that can tease out um, a lot of these other stories. You know, like, I mean, I'm very aware of the, the many regional stories that are, are, are not so included. And, and so it's true. I kind of went, I, I think we inevitably were focusing on, um, I guess you could say the more obvious in that, you know, the West Coast, East Coast had the largest concentrations in terms of numbers of um, art communities. Uh, we do have some art from Texas, from the Midwest, but it is for sure the minority. So there's there's a lot more. There's a lot more to delve into here. Well, along those lines, and finally, you know, we talked about V.S. Hellman's a moment ago and how the, an ongoing three venue, Selman's retrospective, made it hard to include include her in the show. Who is not here and, or what is not in the show that you wish could have been? I would have loved to have Rosenquist in the show. Um, his F-111 would have been a really interesting sort of kickoff. Uh, Basically, you wanted all the 38-foot paintings. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that was the thing, was that it would have been its own room. And on balance, that, that wasn't the trade-off that I... So I didn't actually pursue that because it would have meant eliminating so much else. Uh, and in some ways, I mean, it would have been a killer introduction. But the, so that fell away. There are extraordinary. I mean, we have two, I think, really quite powerful pieces by Ed Keenholz in the show. But it would have been great to have the portable war memorial, which ironically is not so portable. Um, so it was not able that that lives in Cologne. Um, at the Museum Ludwig. There is an extraordinary Dwayne Hansen um, war scene uh, that also is in a public collection in Germany that, uh, for reasons of space, and it, you know, fell, fell away. There, there is a lot. And like I said, I would have liked to have been able to, to research more deeply um, the Midwest and, and, and other places um, to, you know, to, to, to represent more artists but it's you know like I said it is in some ways the entry point and I'm 
I'm sure I'm going to continue to learn a lot over the course of the show as people come and um, and and tell me <laughs> about what's missing. Was there a Rauschenberg you wanted that just didn't work for whatever reason? I don't think I ever found a Rauschenberg that I huh. pursued. Do you have something in mind? No, because I mean that's why I asked because I couldn't think of any. I mean, I, I can think of lots of references to the war in Rauschenbergs. I mean, you know, there are a lot of helicopters, for example. Yeah, um, but true. I can't think of, and I'm not a Rauschenberg scholar, obviously. Oh, there was a there was a poster designed by Rauschenberg that that could have been in the show. Um, there's a ton of ton in the realm of, of printmaking that that I mean that's the other thing you know just just in looking at printmaking it's just this tiny sliver of material that that we were able to include. Yeah, no, I couldn't. I could think of lots of Rauschenbergs that reference the war, but none that were about the war. None that, which of course is, is, is you know, true to his the way he worked. You know, very, very rarely in a Rauschenberg is a. I shouldn't say that. That's probably not quite right because I can think of Rauschenbergs that are about single things. But uh, no, I think I, I, I think and hope you're right that that um, that you launch a thousand investigations. Melissa Ho, thanks so very much. Thanks, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.